About 10 years ago, my best buddy Todd and I were touring through the Midwest, and we decided that we wanted to visit the grave of Edgar Lee Masters somewhere outside of Petersburg, Illinois. When we got to the cemetery, we found Edgar Lee Masters' headstone and noticed that there was a Maine Coon kitten sitting up on top of it. And as soon as she saw me, she jumped off and started running towards me. And I picked her up and petted her for a while. It was just a really, really sweet kitten, and she seemed rather skinny like she hadn't eaten in a while. And I was convinced that my best buddy Todd was going to take her in because he's one of the best animal people I've ever met. He's always feeding stray cats whenever he sees them. There's always stray cats on his porch that he feeds. And he takes in dogs that he sees running loose. And he's one of the more kind-hearted people that you'll ever meet. But for some reason, he said, I've got a house full of animals and I don't need this cat. He was leaning on me really heavy to take her home. And I didn't want to. So we drove back into... Petersburg and we found a grocery store and we bought some cat food. We brought it back to the cemetery and I fed the cat. The cat was up in a tree and as soon as she saw me she jumped down, ran about 50 yards across the cemetery and she was eating like she hadn't eaten in about a week and we sat and thought man we can't leave this cat here. What are we going to do? We walked around for about a half hour to the cemetery and the cat just followed right by my side the whole time. So we went ahead and we put her in the car, and um, we were on tour for another four days through the Midwest with a cat in the car, and uh, the cat would come to gigs and stayed with me. We finally got home, and I told Amy, I have a surprise you need to know about. I said, we don't have to keep her if you don't want to, and she saw the cat and just went nuts and said, of course, we're going to keep her, and her name is Baby. We actually named her Emily Sparks after a character in an Edgar Lee Masters poem, but that didn't stick. And we kept calling her Baby because she was a baby to us, and we would just kept referring to her as that. And after a while, that just became her name. Not the best name, but it's the name we gave her. And every single day that I'm at home, whenever I'm sitting down, she comes over and she jumps up on my lap anytime she sees me sitting somewhere and just starts snuggling and cuddling up. And she's actually sitting on my lap as I say this right here. And I have to say, sometimes I feel really, really guilty that I almost left her in that cemetery. And I'm very, very glad that I didn't. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Sam Baker. Sam is a singer-songwriter based out of Austin, Texas. I first met Sam quite a few years ago when I was doing my first tour through the UK. And I opened for Sam at the Maze in Nottingham. It's the first time I'd ever played there. 
And I had never heard of Sam. My best buddy Todd was with me and he'd never heard of him, but we were both completely blown away. We really, really loved his show and loved his music. And we became friends with him and became fans from that point on. You can find out everything you need to know about Sam at sambakermusic.com. I caught up with Sam at Cedar Creek Recording Studios in South Austin, Texas, and we had a nice conversation. It was really good to see Sam again. Here's Sam Baker. That was our only run, wasn't it? We and I came to that show with you and John D one night, but that was the only only time we've ever been on bill was someplace in in England, wasn't it? The first time was in Nottingham, and I honestly didn't. I'd never heard of you, and I'm sure you'd never heard of me. I'd never heard of you either. But uh, my best buddy Todd was with me, and we yeah, were just I do remember that. Blown now. away, and yeah, he was driving you. Yeah, and you guys didn't have a GPS. You had stacks and stacks of little pieces of paper, <laughs> and I was thinking. And Gerald, my, 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 the, the guy that was over there with me, we were going, you know, if they get a GPS, it might go easier for them. <laughs> we learned that lesson. I know you did. We I know you did. Those roundabouts and those pieces of paper, oh, they don't tell you exactly. You gotta, I saw you guys shuffling those pieces of paper, and I was thinking, you know, that's like, that's like having a deck of cards and trying to find the queen of, queen of hearts uh, in two draws. They, we were always pulling for the inside straight and just never got it. And never got it. That's the story of our lives, Otis, pulling for the inside straight. <laughs> well, they never put in England, they don't have street signs, and the uh, name of the street is sometimes up on a building on the corner way up high, and it's really, really hard when you're trying to find a, where the venue is. Yeah, it's just tricky. I, I tell you what's helpful is those something that like a, it's those satellites in the sky. They will almost every time tell you. Now, you use a GPS now, don't you? Yeah, technology has been very, technology very is, good to the touring musicians. Yeah, that big satellite in the sky does not need to see the name of the street on the side of a building because, because it sees everything. But I think there's more humor in the disasters than there are in the great shows. I mean, but, but the, what Tolstoy say? Uh, um, generally, every happy family is... Is pretty, pretty much the same. But every miserable, unhappy family is unique. Otis, I grew up in a, a town in Texas called uh, Itasca, a small town out on the prairie. It's between uh, Waco and um, Fort Worth. Is that where they made the motorhomes? Well, no, but that's, um, uh, that brings what I would call complexity into the picture. Um, as I understand it, um, Itasca is the name of the lake that is the headwaters of the Mississippi. And I believe that's where uh, Winnebago got that name for um, the Itasca Motorhome. But saying that, I think what happened, and this is a story, and I don't know if it's a true story or if it sounded more true than the real story, but um, the story I heard was that the railroad engineers were coming through um, in the 1800s, um, laying out track, laying out a, a survey for the track. And there was, uh, they came across this place on the prairie, and there was a big puddle of water, and they, they called it um, Itasca, after Lake Itasca. Gabriel Garcia Marquez wrote that book, 100 Years of Solitude, where, where things get a life of their own 
And so my guess is the engineers were kind of spoofing that place on the prairie by calling it the headwaters of the Mississippi when it was out on the prairie and, and probably was a big puddle of water. So, you know, they, 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 they may have been spoofing. I don't know that they were serious in considering that as equal to the headwaters of the Mississippi. It's hard right now in, in modern times. It's 2012, and that was that was a hundred and something years ago. I, my guess is they were um, they had the same sort of sense of humor that we did right now. I don't think a sense of humor has evolved that much. I mean, I think you go back two or three thousand years. I think they were. I think they were joking about the same stuff. I've met a few people whose sense of humor has not evolved at all. Right, right, right. But you know, I, I think I think. Slapstick was probably funny two, three thousand years ago. I think, um, I think body noise jokes, I think those were probably funny back then. Yeah. I think they probably still are funny. Well, how big was Atasca? Twelve hundred people. I think eleven hundred when I was eleven hundred and six when I grew up, but they, you know, they change um, the signs periodically. Um, you know, in Colorado. They put the elevation of the town in, in Texas, they put the population um, as you come into the town. And, and there's always a question as to whether that's accurate or not. I think when with the sign said 1106 when I was a kid, um, and now it says 1200 and something. I don't know exactly what it, what it says, but, but, you know, I had to wonder, how do they keep that reasonably accurate? You know, people move in, they move out. People die. People are born. Um, so I, my guess is it's a, like a rough approximation of, of how many people. And, uh, you know, if they're going to do that, they probably ought to say somewhere between 10, 58, and 11, 30, 11, 40, maybe 11, 50. Otis, when I was a child, it was, um, I hate to use a big word, but um, it was quintessentially small town. We had a, a dry goods store. We had... Uh, barbershop, we had, um, I think we had two barbershops. We had uh, at least one beauty shop, several others possibly. I don't remember that. Flower shop, a bunch of churches, lots of churches. Uh, no bars. It was a dry town. So in Texas, um, counties could forbid the sale of alcohol, which they did uh, in that, that particular county, which Hill County, which is incidentally the home of um, Willie Nelson and close to the home of... Um, Joe Shaver, and the Central Texas uh, Riders is what I would call them, come out of the Blackland Prairie. Um, were they prominent figures when you were a kid? Did you know about Willie was uh, Willie was prominent. Billy Joe, I don't think was, but 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 Willie was. You know, he came through one time. His um, aunt, I think it was his aunt, or it was somebody that was in his family. I, I don't really know the. Family tree, Otis. I, I guess I should know that. I could call somebody at home and ask. Um, he came by one day, a silver, silver Mercedes. But I didn't see him. You know, we we all stood out in the front yard and looked at, stared at the car. You know, we all these, um, these these children that had been playing in the dirt all day. It just we just sort of stood there. <laughs> you know, like you you see these cars passing children in faraway countries and the children are just standing by the road staring at you that's what we were like kind of our mouths were probably open you know just staring at the silver mercedes was like 
You know, it's like Willie came in in a space shuttle or something. <laughs> it's royalty coming through. It's royalty coming through. You know, if he had walked out and had a red velvet cape on and and a and a crown of jewels, um, jewels and irises, I, I think we would have. I think we would have not been surprised. When I was real young, we were uh, ranchers. And uh, I think that last drought in the late 50s convinced everybody of the difficulty of keeping livestock alive. We lived out on a ranch and, and Otis, it was a beautiful life, wonder, wonderful life, full of, um, full of, of energy and, and um, um, horses and cows and pigs and chickens and turkeys and um, all kinds of stuff. I mean, lots of things that lived and lots of things that died. It was, a, it was um, you know, it was interesting to be a, a child in a situation like that. So many things um, died so often. Snakes, chickens, uh, pigs, cows. Cows would get struck by lightning. Uh, they'd break their necks in the, in the wire. Did you guys slaughter some of the animals? To we took them to a slaughterhouse. Did you? We didn't do it on our own. Um, now I've been on ranches where people did their own slaughter and did their own butchering. Um, we didn't because we had a we had a we had a good we had a a, a good locker plant. We would uh, go into my grandmother who originally came out of Valleyuca, Mississippi, on Sunday, and uh, and you know my dad would would wring the necks of chicken so we'd have, we'd have chicken for lunch. And, you know, he had done it really all his childhood, so he was an expert um, chicken neck wringer. Yeah. And that's a skill that's not really um, that valuable anymore. But, um, but that was, you know, you remember, you remember stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, we never had to go out and, and cut the heads off chickens or anything, but, you know, my dad did it. Um, you, you ask about butchering. We didn't really butcher, but we did that. I mean, that's now that just to be accurate. Yeah, we did did butcher chickens, but not 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 steers or, or um, you know or pigs or anything. Yeah, well, the people listening might be horrified, but food comes from somewhere, and I think back then folks were a lot clo- closer to folks were. I mean, you know, I mean, it. My father was. Um, you know, came out of the depression, and they they really struggled having having shoes. Um, so, and they they came through the depression pretty good, I think, because they were in a small town that was um, agrarian, and people people had gardens and people had um, uh, chickens, and I think I think much more of of their time, their days were um, were allocated to, to food, production of food, gathering of food, harvesting of food, and, and cooking of food. I mean, we it's so easy for me. I mean, I, I just go to the grocery store, <laughs> buy, buy some chicken, and then, you know, if, it, if it's got a, a few little extra hairs on it, I'm like, oh, this is, this is so <laughs> hard for me to... Hard for me to accept. Where's my kale? Where, where's my <laughs> kale? Right. right. 
I stopped and got a breakfast taco on the way here, and uh, I was complaining that it took so long. So we're spoiled. We're spoiled, right? Right. But yeah, food comes from someplace, um, and and that was, I mean, as, as you said, um, the trauma can be significant to um, even children. I, I think children are so. Um, reactive to death. I know that I was, and it sounds like you were uh, when you talk about it. I, I think that it's something that, that in the way kids are, are pretty shielded, but, but, but you know, small town agrarian back then, we, we were shielded, but not, not as much. I mean, it was, it was still possible to go to a Sunday dinner, and, and before the dinner, someone goes out Rings an X on a, a few chickens, and then, you know, a little while later, you get Mississippi pan-fried chicken. And so, you know, there's, 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 yes, there's death, and it's awful, and then there's Mississippi pan-fried chicken, which is <laughs> in jelly. My mother was a. Um, a gifted pianist and organist played uh, played all the time around the house and was uh, also played periodically for the church. Played um, played piano and also uh, the church had a pipe organ that she would um, sometimes play that was a very beautiful instrument. So yeah, she we had music uh, around the house. My hat, my dad listened to um, um, a lot of stuff: Brownie McKee, Sonny Terry. Um, Latin and Hopkins. You know, Hopkins grew up, I think, in Centerville, which is not that, not that far from Itasca. And you know, later on, I was doing field work with a with a with a man who who grew up with Latin and Hopkins. So it was, you know, it's a it's small. The world is huge, as you and I both know, and and it can take a, a jet a long time to get some places. But at the same time, Otis, it can be um, it can be pretty small. And, you know, to to, to be to actually work in the field with somebody who grew up with um, with Latin and Hopkins, and that see that's me. That's in my generation. That's still a direct, a direct, um, a life link. I mean, it's not a direct bond to Latin and Hopkins, but it is a life link to to somebody. You know that 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 is old world like like Latin. Did he share any stories about? He said he was a. Uh, um, he said he carried a guitar everywhere he went, and he um, he got all the girls. <laughs> the ladies liked lightning. The ladies liked lightning. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> Probably exactly like that. Now it was more. It was more melodic. It was more musical. He had a he had a much more musical speech pattern than I do. Mm-hmm. It was it was almost like a, like singing and talking at the same time. Were you a were you a football fan? I was, and a player. What, what yeah. team? The Itasca Wampus Cats. Played defensive back um, until my senior year. Then I was a quarterback. Okay. What kind of quarterback were you? A, a poor quarterback. <laughs> a poor quarterback with not much of an arm. You know, when we had to throw the ball, Otis, I would have to pitch it over to one of uh, my halfbacks, and and they had. Uh, you know, they had, uh, as, they, as the cliche goes, they had, they had rifle-like arms and they could throw it um, 
far and accurate. And I winged it, um, and it fluttered uh, gracelessly and fell mostly <laughs> into places where, uh, where my own team, um, where they were not. <laughs> A wounded duck. I don't think it flew that well. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been in and out of Austin for a long time, and it was uh, it just seemed to make sense to move here. For musically, mostly. Or? No, I was I didn't do music notice until much much later. I mean, my first record was '04. Um, I started doing some open mics probably '02. Started playing a roadhouse west of here, where where I actually learned learned to play. Um, yeah, I was I was working full time till '05. I was building um, building stuff. In carpentry. Yeah, carpenter and project manager was my last job. Just getting stuff built. Um, yeah, so this is all. To be honest, it's all new as far as um, as far as a musical career. Um, and in dog years, it's. Pretty young. Were there people here in town that were friendly to you and helped help things help get things started musically? Yeah. Well, no, I wasn't really part of the music. You know, I was working. I was, I was building apartments. You don't you don't actually run into a whole lot of <laughs> musicians on job sites in Nashville. That's where you meet all of them. <laughs> no, on my, on my job sites, really, the, they they were. You know, we we had a, a ton of crews, but not a lot of musicians. And these were these were commercial crews. You know, um, now I have been on job sites as a trim guy where there were musicians, but but my last job now. I mean, think Austin. Yeah, it was it was nice to be here. I mean, it's nice to be able to go see people. I, I didn't know it. You know, it's only been in the last few years that I've really started meeting uh, people in the musical community. I my I did a record because uh, I wanted to do one good record, one good piece of art, and that went out and and really I didn't think anything would come of it. And what happened was Garf Morlicks who is local and who is a, a, an amazing uh, person, in addition to being a, a great artist, uh, gave a copy to, to Bob Harris in, in London. And um, I, was, I, it was, I was selling, you know, I had them online. I was selling one record every 90, 120 days. And then one day, they were all gone from the store. And I thought, well, there was someone's had a, Computer error. <laughs> I guess that Bob started playing it. Bob started playing it. And then I, so I got a call from a guy in Scotland and said, do you want to come over and do a tour? And I said, sure. And I didn't mention that I'd never toured, didn't really know how to do it, and still had terrible stage fright. I had no idea you had st stage fright. Oh, it was awful. I think I might have met you on that tour because I opened up for you. And yeah, it was it was a real early and... tour. Yeah, it was it was. Look, I I wasn't used to even playing. I wasn't used to doing solo shows. You know, nobody knew it. I didn't, I didn't feel like I ought to. You know, I thought, well, let's try it. See see how it works. Um, I flew into, uh, but you know, I was prepared to come back and just keep working if it all fell apart. Sometimes does. And which it sometimes does, and that's when it doesn't hurt to have skills, you know, to know how to know how concrete sets up and how and how to stick for him. Those are those are 
you know those are good skills to 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 know in certain situations i mean we don't need to know how to pour concrete every day but well when there's a concrete truck coming it's that's a handy 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 skill to have yeah when you say you had stage fright were the audiences and they're very polite over there that had to help didn't it or, or was it a hindrance that everybody was being so quiet i think it was was good you know i, I mean when, when i was learning i i, I was a, playing with some friends at a roadhouse and 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 everybody was you know they were they would have food and they'd have uh drinks and people would be dropping plates and it'd be loud and stuff and that was what I needed. I needed a, a, a great indifference so that I could start getting past um, the um, the terror of, of stage fright. And I, I don't know how long I did that, but Otis, you know, those were real sweet people. And, and I played uh, for a while, and then one day I looked up, and they were um, listening, and I, and I was ready for them to listen. We, we kind of just grew up together. But that, that's still different. It's like playing for family where you've done it, you know, a hundred times as opposed to showing up at, uh, in Amsterdam at Paradiso and, and doing a show for, for people who were stone silent. My first show, that was my first show in Europe. I'd, I'd flown in and did an interview, and I'd fallen, and uh, the, one of the fingers on my fretting hand, you know, I don't play really, you know, I play knock the top off one hand so I don't play guitar very well. And so I had to start playing left-handed guitar instead of right hand. And so on my right hand where I fret, I'd fallen. And this finger, this small finger, turned black. And I couldn't use it. And I had a bad cold and could barely sing. So I had to do this first show, solo show, with three fingers and almost no voice. And, um, you know, the way I was playing and the quality of my delivery, they couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> They still loved it, and it's well. They were, fun. yeah, they were real sweet. But I mean, as far as musicality, I, there's, I've set a pretty low standard. <laughs> Got to give them something you can build on. Yeah, you you want to be able to do a little bit better that next tour, and so why not start pretty low? <laughs> In '86, I went down to Peru with some pals uh, and we were walking around and looking at stuff and it was pretty um, amazing. The Peruvians are, are really wonderful, sweet, open, generous people. Um, and to make a long story short, we, um, we ended up in Cusco, which is a, a beautiful uh, colonial town. I, I don't know what the elevation is, 10,000 maybe. And we were, uh, got on the train to Machu Picchu, the, the narrow gauge rail, and somebody had put a bomb on it in a red backpack, put it up on the luggage rack. And it was, um, I was sitting there, you know, two faced two. Little boy was next to me, and, and um, his mother was diagonally, and his father was across. And he and I spoke a little bit, and then uh, the bomb, bomb went off. Um, killed the mother, killed the father. Um, Killed the boy too. It, it took a, took a while for him to die. I had a um, cut artery, femoral artery in my left leg, and, and cut vein, and blew my ears in, and and um, sent me into a different space. 
And um, I was somehow able to live through that day. Um, lots of blood, lots of transfusions, lots of, you know, I had a, a, a cranial bleed. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a, it's a subdural. Um, it's, a, it's brain damage is what it is. So, um, and, you know, it was a night of, of, of living and dying. Dying, living, dying, living. Um, and got, somehow got through it. Um, the military vacked us down to Lima, stayed there a few days, and, and then uh, by that time, gangrene had set in. I don't know if you know much about that. That's a pretty, pretty stinky little um, endeavor. And renal failure, I had. Uh, so we stayed there for a few days, and then um, a military, a U.S. military evac uh, came in. I think they were out of West Virginia. Very, very brave, competent people. Um, they came in and, and, um, and got us as, as American citizens and flew us back out. And they really, uh, you know, th- those guys, you know, go into a place and th- they didn't know what to expect, you know. So it was under martial law. They didn't know if they had surfaced there. They didn't know, you know, they didn't know anything. They, they, but here those guys roll in, you know, grabbed us. And, and flew us back out. They, and they, they flew long. We were supposed to stop in Panama, and the pilots were over ours. But um, what happened was there was a little girl named Monica, and she had taken shrapnel to the head. And um, she, as I understand it, her heart stopped somewhere in the flight back. So they made a decision to fly along to go over hours and fly all the way back in San Antonio so that they could, um, they kept her alive manually so that she could see her mother one last time and get, and get last rites in San Antonio. So um, because of that, I got into Wilford Hall, which is um, one of the preeminent trauma centers, for, especially for wounds like I had, uh, massive shrapnel. Uh, massive shrapnel and, and infection. So, I mean, she dies, I live. So how, how do you calculate that? But back to that, you know, I, I've struggled with that for, for years. Otis. I don't know how you process that. Um, the one thing that I'm real clear on is... Um, you kill a kid for any reason. It doesn't ever get well. It doesn't ever heal. You know, you blow a kid up. You know, you see these things on the TV. The bombs go in. They've got cameras right on the nose. And everybody goes, oh, wow, isn't that cool? Well, let me tell you, on the other side of that, um, it's not. The blast wave blows your ears in, flattens your lungs so you can't breathe. And then when it kills children, the world, the world doesn't recover from that. I don't recover. Nobody does. Did you ever know who, uh, who was behind the bombing? Did they ever come they to They said justice? the Shining Path was. 
I don't know what that is. El Sendero Luminoso. It's, it's, it's a terrorist group that was uh, active in Peru during that time. I mean, is it that, was it them? Probably. But, but, but you know, who knows? My, my guess is that they probably was. Have you ever returned to Peru? Yes, I have. And, they, and the Peruvians were just as sweet and warm and generous and, and as, as I remember. Now, when I, when I first got out and I had to go through so many surgeries and I couldn't walk and, and you know, my brain, I couldn't get my, you know, I couldn't remember nouns. I couldn't remember basic stuff. How long did it take to get, get back to wherever you are now? Well, it's been a long process. I don't, I don't know that, um, you know, I don't know what getting back means anymore. I, th I think really, I don't know that I would say getting back to anything. I'd say I had to, what I had to do was learn to live with um, what was left and learn to be grateful for what, what was left as opposed to being uh, bitter about what was lost. I don't want to minimalize anything, but so I don't know how to phrase the question, but do you have a, uh, a sense of I'm going to grab life by the, you know, since you've been so close to, to leaving this realm? I don't know that I have a sense of grabbing anything. I have a sense, I think more of a sense of, of accepting with gratitude. I, I'm not much of a grabber these days, but um, I'm, I'm doing better at whatever rolls up. Um, I'm generally pretty, pretty grateful for whatever it is. Well, I appreciate you uh, sitting down with me, Sam. It's good to spend the morning with you. Otis, thank you. It sure is good to see you. Drive safely going home. Congratulations on your anniversary. Oh, right. Now, what, what is this? How many years? 14 years. 14 years. And, and, and you share... Um, you share so many things, including uh, a piece of paper that says you both owe a lot of money. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that makes us American. And that makes you American. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Sam for having this chat with me. And you can find out everything you need to know about Sam at sambakermusic.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any album I've ever made. You can buy one of my beautiful photographic prints, and they look great on the wall in your living room. Or you can pick up one of Amy's records. You could buy Amy's children's book while you're there. But anything you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, you can go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment on there. It'll take you just a few seconds, but it'll help us move up in the search rankings and help a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.